It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I got a few words for Tom Brady. You know, newly retired NFL player, greatest of all time, and so on. So he's talking about the importance of decompression. And he says, you know, I guess of his football career, you're on this really crazy treadmill, hamster wheel for a long time, loving the moment and the journey. At the same time, it's a daily fight. Where this is going is Tom Brady has just served notice that he won't start his stint with Fox Sports until the fall of 2024. Now, the assumption was if he wasn't out there on the field playing, he'd be in the booth. Dude, this is just me speaking, not speaking for the company. Dude, Fox Sports is going to pay you $375 million over 10 years. You think maybe six months is enough time for you to decide you're ready to show up for work? I mean, I don't say this because I don't think Tom Brady is lazy or that he wants an extended vacation. I, I take him at his word, but it's not that hard. You sit in front of a microphone and you comment on the players and the plays and the strategy. The way you get better is the same way you got better as a quarterback. You log more playing time and you improve. You could totally be ready, as so many of your former athletic colleagues were, in six months, and people would want to hear what you have to say. But instead, he's saying, you know, uh, I have so much appreciation for people who are committed to showing up, putting uh, their max effort into their life and career. So take some time to really learn, become great at what I want to do, become great at about thinking about the opportunity, making sure I don't rush into anything. Well, you kind of took care of that when you, you, your agent, signed the contract. Uh, really looking forward to my Fox jump. All right. I guess the rest of us mere mortals will just have to wait. National Enquirer, which is so closely associated with scandal, and over the years broken some really important scandal stories, including John Edwards' affair and the baby he had with the woman from his campaign, including Tiger Woods and his long list of extramarital activities. But the National Enquirer itself had been consumed by scandal, and now it's being sold. Uh, it, the scandal I'm referring to, of course, or one of them, had to do with this case. A couple of cases here. This, there was Stormy Daniels. There was another woman, Karen McDougal. Uh, we're basically facilitating the payment of hush money or facilitating the payment to women who in exchange would be given a little bit of work to do, but would basically keep quiet about whatever, um, shall we say, uh, relationships they did or did not have with the former president. So it's being sold to a company I never heard of. VVIP Ventures, which is a joint venture of Vinco Ventures and some other company they've just set up, price not disclosed, yeah, it paid $150,000 in hush money to former Playboy model Karen McDougal. Um, and then, of course, there was the whole Jeff Bezos 
uproar where the Amazon founder accused the Inquirer of trying to extort and blackmail him uh, once having obtained, let's just say, some compromising photos. That seems like a long time ago. Uh, I just, um, I'm not going to shed any tears, but I think the Inquirer is a kind of a shadow uh, of what it once was. And maybe, you know, I mean, it had decades where, you know, people bought it at the supermarket counter. Maybe its time has come and passed, as would so many other uh, media entities. Salman Rushdie, um, in a long interview with The New Yorker's David Remnick, uh, has spoken for the first time about the assassination attempt on his life last year. And, you know, that was just a horrible, horrible thing to happen from a guy who, you know, has had to spend a good chunk of his adult life in hiding because of the fatwa against him. Even after it was lifted, you know, he knew that he uh, he wasn't like everybody else. So the guy who did this has pleaded not guilty. I don't know. I mean, I think there's lots and lots of witnesses. He was at a book talk. What uh, and, and Salman Rushdie has a new book out called Victory City, which I guess is part of the reason that he's doing this. Uh, what do you think about this guy? Uh, I don't know what I think of him because I don't know him. All I've seen is his idiotic interview in the New York Post, which only an idiot would do, Rushdie said. He said that beyond his physical recovery, I mean, he's lost sight in one eye and he's got other physical ailments from this stabbing, that he also experiences nightmares. So I wish him well with the book. Uh, just sort of an awful thing to go through, but at least uh, he's still able to write and pursue his livelihood. Okay, story number one, the balloon. Turns out the Biden administration is now backtracking on the balloon. The Biden administration was doing a lot of spinning on the balloon, and now uh, some of that effort to make itself look good or avoid responsibility for not acting sooner than eight days about this spycraft um, some of the, the things that put out there turn out not quite to be true. It is reminiscent, in a way, of the classified documents mess. You know, put out the information slowly, and then it turns out it's not all accurate. And I'm not, you know, as I talked about yesterday, I'm not one of these people who's like, Joe Biden, he should have shot, he should have uh, gone out and shot the missile himself as soon as he learned about this. That's a subject for debate. But the spinning part and the business about other balloons, not looking so good for the president and his administration as he gets prepared to give the State of the Union speech tonight, which we'll talk about a little later in the podcast. So here's a piece in the Washington Post that puts it pretty bluntly. The top U.S. general responsible for protecting North American skies saying yesterday that past incursions by Chinese balloons went undetected by the Pentagon. They didn't know about it till after the fact. The DOD has acknowledged that the craft shot down Saturday off the South Carolina coast uh, marked at least the fifth time in recent years that Beijing has breached America's airspace using this kind of technology. And, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages versus spy satellites. Because this is closer to the Earth, to the Earth, the pictures can be better and the maneuvering can be better. Uh, and so 
there were similar breaches near Texas, Florida, Hawaii, and Guam. Uh, Members of Congress were told about this. And three of those instances occurred during the Trump presidency. But hold on, uh, that is suddenly starting to look very different, as I think the Biden people were trying to do a slam dunk on Donald Trump, who said, you know, this never happened. Fake disinformation, all caps is what he said. Anyway, General Glenn Van Herc, he's the NORAD commander. He says, it's my responsibility to detect these threats. I will tell you that we did not detect those threats. And that's a domain awareness gap we have to figure out. I mean, the military jargon never ceases to amaze me. So three of the incursions occurred when Donald Trump was president. But now comes more on what really happened, because I was surprised that Trump would go so hard and that some of his national security officials would go so hard in denying this. Two former defense officials, speaking on condition of anonymity, telling the Washington Post that the, the, our military didn't really know until after the fact that these were surveillance balloons and has reached out to officials from the previous administration, has offered briefings, John Kirby said, uh, you know, we're very sincere in this. But if Trump didn't know and his national security team didn't know until after the balloons had already crossed over uh, U.S. airspace, then you could hardly hold them accountable for not acting against the balloons. And I don't know if I'd go so far to say it was misinformation, but I think it was spun. I think it was like, hey, you want to criticize us? Look at Donald Trump. He didn't shoot down any balloons. Except the Trump administration, apparently what they're now confessing to in this administration is they didn't know about it. You can't go after an enemy target if the only time you find out about the enemy target is once it's no longer a threat. And by the way, you know, I'm glad this general is, so to speak, falling on his sword, but Come on. You didn't do your job. I'm mean, not him just specifically, but the whole U.S. military apparatus, if it can't detect a slow-moving balloon uh, put up by one of our main adversaries, that's a real serious breach or potential breach of national security. And I think there'll be hearings in the House with the Republicans, and there should be. And and if the Democrats still control the House, they should have held the hearings because we can't mess around with this stuff. Again, I don't, you know, the Pentagon took the position that it was able to uh, jam or somehow stop the balloon from gathering further intelligence. And by the way, those who are like, you should shoot it down right away over land, well, who cares? You know, Montana will hit a couple of cows. This thing, which now they're starting to recover bits and pieces of, uh, from the uh, Atlantic, off the coast of Carolina. This thing weighed about 2,000 pounds. It was about 200 feet tall, carrying equipment around the size of a regional jetliner, according to this general. So, yeah, people might have gotten hurt if it had been shot down over land. I mean, the military had a point. 
Imagine this. Joe Biden gives the order, as he has said, to shoot down this balloon immediately while it's over U.S. land. It crashes. It crashes into a school or it crashes into a shopping center and some people die and there's all kinds of damage. Don't you think all the critics out there would completely turn around and say, President Biden, how could you be so reckless? You overruled your own military. They told you to be cautious. They told you there was no imminent threat. They told you they could shoot it down over the water and you insisted on it being shot down immediately and it hit this town of wherever. I think this whole situation would look a lot different. I mean, this is an embarrassment. It's also an embarrassment for China. Um, And obviously, there are breaches in U.S. national security that need to be taken care of. But I'm just kind of making the obvious point that military experts are experts for a reason. And it could have been worse. And I'm not somebody who implicitly thinks that the Pentagon always tells the truth. I mean, I grew up during the Vietnam War. When they would brief the press, it was known, uh, each day it was known as the five o'clock follies because everything was, the light was always at the end of the tunnel. It was, we were always on the verge of winning. And of course, we did not win that war. And tragically, so many Americans lost their lives in fighting that war, uh, taking nothing away from their bravery, but their commanders-in-chief were pursuing a flawed strategy that didn't have the backing of the country. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go to number two. You're already seeing the promos here. State of the Union tonight, Joe Biden, 9 Eastern. So we already kind of sort of know what he's going to say because these things are leaked traditionally every year. He is going to challenge the Republicans, the House Republicans at least, to raise taxes on the wealthy, reading here from a New York Times story, extend more social aid to the needy, and rule out cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Now, forgive me if I were to respond to this by saying every one of those things will be dead on arrival, with the possible exception of ruling out, at least in this sort of budgetary round, cuts to Social Security and Medicare. And there's a whole other side of that, which is the people who want to reduce benefits or delay eligibility, or there's a whole bunch of different formulas. It's not that they don't care about old people It's that the program is going to go bankrupt unless something is done. It's literally going to run out of money unless modifications are made. Everybody knows this, but it still becomes a political football, you know, trying to pin the blame since they're kind of sacrosanct programs and elderly people vote in high percentages. Anyway, this is the first State of the Union um, with a divided Congress. And the Times piece says that no one expects the Republicans to embrace Biden's program or that Biden would agree to deep spending cuts, the ones that Kevin McCarthy is demanding. Now, there'll be a lot of, I can just see this being a laundry list, which is the deadliest kind of speech. You know, uh, falling inflation, 
Record low unemployment, not since it hasn't been this low since 1969. Strong job growth. Uh, and then he'll talk, I mean, you've heard him talk about these things, infrastructure, uh, prescription drug prices, uh, insulin, uh, roads and bridges, etc. So Kevin McCarthy actually delivered a pre-buttal last night, tried to kind of depict himself as the reasonable negotiator here and saying that, you know, we have to change course and pointing out in his speech that Biden had voted against raising the debt ceiling as a senator back in 2004, obviously using his words against him. I always have to jump in and say this. Both parties play this game. When the other party controls the White House, you don't do what they want, and you you make a lot of mischief. mischief. And when your party controls the White House, you say, well, of course you have to just pass this debt ceiling without any questions asked. That's what happened three times under Trump. So on the other side of the... Biden political equation is that he is under investigation by a special counsel in the classified documents matter. And this whole fiasco with the Chinese spy balloon, you know, kind of served as the run-up to tonight's State of the Union. And here, this is interesting because I mentioned the other day, and I mentioned in our media buzz as well, Washington Post uh, ABC News poll showing that a majority of Democrats, majority of Democrats, do not want President Biden to run for a second term. A lot of that, I think, is related to his age. He would be 86 years old at the end of his second term. Beyond that, I mean, there was even more people thought Biden had accomplished some things to very little, then thought he'd accomplished a lot. And I could sit here and go through all the, you know, this hasn't happened in a very long time in Washington, all the bipartisan bills that were passed, not to mention the, whatever the final thing ended up being called, Build Back Better, you know, not the trillions of dollars that Biden originally wanted to spend, but huge amounts of money being spent, unimaginable amounts of money being spent on um, climate change, on health care, on you name it. So here's Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist, saying Biden has been a great president. He's made good on an uncommon number of campaign promises. He should be celebrated today, but he should not run again. And I thought we were through this cycle. And, and, and Goldberg has said a version of this before. She says, you know, there's a rift in the Democratic Party, obviously, about whether an 80-year-old president should give a speech talking about all the things he's going to do over the next four years, which actually wouldn't start until two years from now, so really it's the next six years. Um, She quotes Sarah Longwell, who's an anti-Trump Republican strategist who does a lot of focus groups. Democrats say he's done a good job, but he's too old, Longwell says. He'll be closer to 90 than 80 by the end of his second term. Here it is, 78% of Dems and Dem-leaning independents approve of the job Biden has done, but 58% of them want a different candidate next year. Now, Michelle Goldberg then says, look, uh, you know, beside having a successful record, he's an incumbent. Primaries are expensive, exhausting, 
Uh, if Biden were a few years younger, it wouldn't be worth uh, going through this. But it's hard to ignore, and this is not, you know, some right-wing commentator. This is a very liberal newspaper columnist. It's hard to ignore the toll of Biden's years, no matter how hard elected Democrats try. In some ways, the more sympathetic you are to Biden, the harder it can be to watch him stumble over his words, a tendency that can't be entirely explained by his stutter. Longwell said that in the focus group, some people talked about holding their breath every time he speaks. And obviously in 2020, he could mostly, you know, the cliche is he did it from his basement. We were in the middle of the first part of the pandemic. This time, he would have to travel all around the country, which she describes as a Herculean task for a 60-year-old and a near-impossible one for an octogenarian, and that a primary would be good because uh, it would allow another Democrat to emerge, better suited by age and whatever, to the moment. Except that's where the argument often breaks down, because, you know, we've talked the last couple of days about um, those very tough pieces, first in the Washington Post, then in the New York Times, on Kamala Harris, and how many Democrats just don't think she has the skill and the charisma to put together a winning presidential campaign. She could, of course, inherit the job. Uh, and we would, of course, hope that that would not happen. Um, but then you just go through this list of governors who are just untested or, you know, could they emerge and be the face of the younger generation of the Democratic Party? Sure. But it also means they haven't, none of them have been vetted. And the same thing is true on the Republican side. So I wouldn't so easily dismiss the fact, the advantages of incumbency. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert was sort of doing a, a kind of a sermon yesterday, and she said this of Joe Biden, let his days be few and another take his office. That's why I filed articles of impeachment for Joe Biden. Unfortunately, he does have a really great insurance policy named Kamala Harris. So I don't know. I mean, let his days be few kind of sounds like she's hoping that the president is not around much longer. I had the same visceral reaction to that Atlantic piece. I actually talked about this on Media Buzz, where a former Republican congressman was quoted as saying that others are telling him they just kind of wish that Donald Trump would keel over so that the GOP could move on from the 45th president. I mean, come on. You know, this is politics. Uh, it's important. Uh, the country is just filled with anger and frustration. I have a whole column about this today, ranging from the screaming at each other over the balloon to um, about ha at least about half of each party not wanting Trump or Biden to run, to just the people saying they'll be angry if Biden wins another term, or another whole chunk of people says they'll be angry if Trump gets back in the White House. Um, and there you have it. So, but, you know, to say, I hope the person isn't around, even if that's not quite what she meant, I just think you don't go there. Number three, this sounds like a kind of a boring economic story. It's not, it's not, it's really not boring. <laughs> um, I meant to get to this the other day because the occupancy rate for workers being back in the offices in cities has just crossed the threshold of 50%. But many experts are saying that could be as good as it gets. So think about it. If you're New York, Washington's a big problem in Washington. In fact, Mayor Muriel Bowser has asked President Biden to 
order more federal employees, obviously the biggest source of employment here, um, to go back to the office because th there's this ripple effect, which not only do you have, you know, zillions of dollars in unused office space if all these buildings are only half full. And this is true, you know, in Chicago, and it's true you go through the list. And even in San Francisco, um, it's come up a bit because so many people work remotely in the Bay Area. But if the figures aren't going to get much higher, you know, think about the impact on the economy of all these cities beyond the people taking the hit who own these office buildings. You know, you don't have as many people coming to buy lunches and to go shopping and all of that. It's not exactly like they're ghost towns, but I see a lot of boarded up storefronts or coming soon, some other, you know, store. And what's happening is there are some companies that are pushing here, General Motors, Starbucks, Disney, uh, trying to lure workers back to the office saying, well, at least four days a week. Uh, TikTok has actually said you could be fired if you don't live close enough to come in two days a week. Um, and the list goes on. And the thing is, this really could be a turning point for the economy because a lot of people who got very accustomed to working at home and like, like see all the benefits and you don't have to spend, you know, 40 minutes each way driving to work, which is not the best use of your time necessarily. Um, it seems to me that this is a very bad harbinger, but now some of them will say, well, fine, I'm quitting your job and I'm going to go work for this other place, which says they don't care if I come in at all, or maybe I only need to come in one day a week. So if you think about, you know, these towering skyscrapers, you know, whether it's Atlanta or any other major city, Denver, you know, if, if they're all half empty, that can't be a good thing for the economy. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, you remember I did what I'm now going to call a deep dive where I said, I didn't know if this is going to work even on a podcast, but I want to really get into the nuts and bolts of this piece in Columbia Journalism Review by longtime investigative reporter, mostly for the New York Times, Jeff Gerth, who calls out the media as a extensive, um, almost Herculean amount of reporting to reach the conclusion that a lot of the media screwed up on the Russia story, took a, a garbage dossier that was peddled in part by Hillary Clinton's people and inflated the Russia story. It's not that there was no story and there was a meeting with Don Jr. where, you know, if what you say is true, I love it. But bottom line is there wasn't collusion found. And Girth plays a lot of blame on the media. And as I've mentioned, even, you know, quotes Bob Woodward is saying that he feels like they, including his Washington Post, screwed up, and he, but nobody at the Post was interested in talking to him more about it. Anyway, here's Rich Lowry in National Review saying, finally, a little media accountability. It isn't just that the media failed in covering Russiagate during the Trump years. Since then, they have displayed a near-total unwillingness to examine their role in whipping up a national hysteria based on paranoia and confirmation bias. 
By the way, I've got another deep dive coming up behind this, so stay tuned. Um, in other words, the media have piled a lack of accountability on top of their original sins of journalistic incompetence and ideological malice. Now, you would expect Lowry to be tough. He's a conservative and doesn't necessarily have the highest opinion of the mainstream media. Um, but he writes, Girth has the goods on how the press botched the story from beginning to end, lays them out in detail. He could have easily done uh, another 24,000 words on the hysteria at CNN alone. Uh, now, Larry says, look, if you've been following this closely, it's not revelatory in the sense of breaking news. You knew the outlines of this. But Girth details how the media hyped the dossier, though it should have been clear that it was worthless, how it spun up the collusion narrative. And, and by the way, Rich Lowry, not a big fan of Donald Trump these days, so it's not like a Trump loyalist rushing to his defense. Um, and the reaction from the legacy media, that's an insult if you're not familiar with it, uh, to Girth's report has been crashing silence, proving his point of how outlets aren't willing to grapple with the scale of their dereliction. And, and so many times when I write about media failures or when I talk about media failures, there's just no um, soul-searching. There's just no, gee, we really have to think hard about this because we really screwed this one up. There are plenty of examples of that. And there's been some pushback from the left, or people who've picked up on the Columbia Journalism Review piece. David Brock, described as no one's arbiter of standards for anything, asks, how did Jeff Girth's garbage get published in the Columbia Journalism Review? Um, anyway, Larry goes on to say that even the what the Russians did do, which was, you know, hacking the emails and so forth, uh, was ended up being sort of a minor element, wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. That's probably right, although it's hard to prove a hypothetical. Um, the Trump campaign information that Paul Manafort shared with a Russian oligarch that he owed a lot of money to was trivial, it was some advanced polling stuff. Um, and so, you know, I... I kind of agree. It's not that I uh, uh, agree with every one of the 24,000 words that Jeff Girth wrote, but I certainly agree that when we, and by we I mean the collective news media business, screw up, we just sort of move on to the next thing. Nothing to see here. Like the Twitter files. Absolutely devastating. I've devoted columns and I've devoted television segments to it. And it was basically ignored. Basically totally ignored by most of the mainstream media. All right, I've been looking forward to getting to number five because this is another one where I'm going to kind of aim high and it's all radioactive and controversial, but let's see where, where we go. This is from Andrew Sullivan on his Substack. you know, a guy I have known well, a British journalist, still considers himself a conservative, but very anti-Trump, voted for Obama. And one of the most brilliant thinkers and writers that I've ever met in this business. So he says, there's times when I actually feel some pity for the editors in mainstream media. In the last few years, pressured relentlessly by young super leftist staffers, they've slowly and then precipitously dropped the goal of objectivity and news in favor of subjectivity, subjectivity and narratives. The struggle against white supremacy has become too urgent for news that may not advance, quote, social justice. 
Uh, this is from a, a leaked transcript of a New York Times staff meeting back in 2019. Somebody stood up and said, I- I'm wondering what you, uh, to what extent you think the fact of racism and white supremacy being sort of the foundation of this country should play into our reporting, just because it feels to me like it should be a starting point, you know? I just feel like racism is in everything. It should be considered in our science reporting, in our culture reporting, in our national reporting. And so to me, it's less about the individual instances of racism and sort of how we're thinking about racism and white supremacy as the foundations of all systems in this country. So what happens? You get these two uh, tragic mass killings in California. Uh, One of them in Monterey Park, the other one in Half Moon Bay, where the targets were Asian-Americans, but the perpetrators were Asian-Americans. How does that fit into, quote, white supremacy? Same thing, obviously, with the Tyree uh, Nichols case. Five black officers, one black victim who should still be alive today. Guy with no criminal record. Routine traffic stop. And... Apparently, as says, writes Andrew, that the reality in these kinds of situations is far more complex than the crude racial hierarchies beloved of actual white supremacists or woke activists. Maybe racial prejudice is present, maybe not, or maybe mixed into a range of other possible factors. But if the facts don't fit the narrative, you move on quickly to a story that will. So, with the Asian American massacre, both of them, After some initial excitement, the MSM lost interest as soon as a white man could not be blamed. I wouldn't quite agree that the MSM totally lost interest in the Tyree Nichols case. Uh, Got an awful lot of coverage, and a lot of it was about this question of could even black police officers uh, have a bigoted view of potential black suspects? And again, Nichols didn't do anything. Um... An Asian-American wellness reporter for USA Today wrote, so yes, this is about the Asian-American mass shootings. This time, the tragic shooting might not have been out of racism, but that doesn't negate the constant harassment, violence, and hatred we battle on a daily basis. Note the word might. Okay, and then Andrew gets to to Tyree Nichols, uh, and then uh, he quotes um, Jamel Hill of The Atlantic, who actually was at ESPN when she called Donald Trump a white supremacist when he was president. She says the murderous cops were non-white people carrying water for whiteness. So everything has to be taken back to white supremacy. The New Yorker's Jelani Cobb, the most pernicious effects of American racism were to be seen in what happened in the absence of white people, not in their presence. So we instantly knew this was not about bad individuals or bad training or bad policies. But about white supremacy. And, and this is the part where that I struggle with, because if we, if we give short shrift to stories that don't fit the narrative and then move on to try to find one that does fit the narrative, that doesn't speak very well of journalism. Uh, critical race theory denies human agency, says Sullivan, to members of minorities, strips them of choice, renders them inert, as individuals. They are only ever instruments of the, quote, system. Now, finally, journalists used to do this, searching for truth rather than enforcing pre-existing narratives. 
alert to the surprising specific more than the predictable structural and systemic. Uh, And you know what? Readers were interested rather than bored, engaged rather than condescended to, and the press thrived. Now look at it, and this is where Andrew closes. U.S. media have the lowest credibility, 26% of 46 nations, according to a study. And moral clarity journalists seem intent on driving it even lower. This is a topic that we should continue to talk about because it really is about woke newsrooms. It's about, is there an explanation for everything that everything can be explained by race? That no matter the circumstances, and even if the cops are black, and even if the shooter is Asian American, um, either it's then irrelevant or somehow it ties into white supremacy. I am certainly not suggesting there is not still an awful lot of racial prejudice, of racial prejudice in this country. But as journalists, we got to do better. And we can't just be pushing an ideological agenda. Or what happens is you get those people who agree with you and you lose all those people who don't agree with you. Uh, If you're still listening right now, you probably at least agree this is an important topic. Thank you for spending this time with me. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.